Cherry Hill Volvo, we have absolutely incredible offers and a plethora of both new and certified Volvos from which to choose. We are eager to offer amazingly competitive prices, plus an additional $1,000 Costco discount on all new Cherry Hill Volvos. When leasing or purchasing a new or certified Cherry Hill Volvo, you become a valued part of our team. Join Cherry Hill Volvo for the pricing and attention you deserve. I am Judith Krepnick, president of Cherry Hill Volvo. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. WOGL HD3 Philadelphia from the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios where relationships matter always live on the free Odyssey app the revolution will be broadcast this is the next generation of talk now this is the drive at 5 30 minutes of non-stop talk with Rich Zioli Yes, an abbreviated show tonight, but a, an abbreviated show is still better than no show at all, right? Absolutely. Welcome to the abbreviated show edition. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. More states look to kick Trump off the ballot. They just won't stop, will they? Of course not. They never will. And that's where we are today at this very moment. Hello and welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Hope you're having a good uh, ride home. This will be my last official show. Of the year, at least uh, in this capacity, I will be filling in for Dana Lash tomorrow from 12 to 3. And then there's more basketball tomorrow. So uh, that's where things are with that. Um, Let's first begin, though, with the idea of the the special counsel, Jack Smith, who's investigating Donald Trump, is an unconstitutional position. He doesn't actually have the authority and he should not be there. Let's let's begin there, shall we? Because I think it's really eye-opening what i read over at reason.com today in the volick conspiracy and the guy who wrote this piece has filed an amicus brief with the supreme court arguing that the appointment of jack smith as special counsel special prosecutor uh is unconstitutional that he doesn't have the power and that everything he's done up until this moment is null and void null and void and that is now before the united states supreme court for them to take a look at and adjudicate Now, I have no idea what the United States Supreme Court is going to do, none whatsoever. None of us do. But I did think it's worth sharing with you the thinking here by Stephen Calabresi, who's a law professor. And he points out that on November 18th, 2022, Attorney General Merrick Garland purported to appoint private citizen Jack L. Smith to be a special counsel with the power of one of the 93 United States attorneys, but with nationwide function. This makes Jack Smith more powerful than any of the 93 U.S. attorneys, even though they haven't been, they have been Senate confirmed. He is not. Jack Smith has not been confirmed by the United States Senate. A close examination of the Justice Department's organic statute makes it clear that unlike at least four other heads of cabinet departments, the head of the Justice Department was not, in the words of the Appointments Clause, been by law vested with the power to appoint inferior officers like Jack Smith, who have more power than any of the 93 Senate confirms confirmed United States attorneys general. And what he does is he goes through this entire point. But what he does say is that had Merrick Garland made Jack Smith, somebody else, not Jack Smith, made one of the United States U.S. attorneys, the special counsel, that would have been okay. But to just pluck a private citizen who's not currently working in the Department of Justice in that capacity of a Senate approved position to just pluck him in as special counsel. No bueno. No good. Doesn't pass constitutional muster. Since 1999, when the independent counsel provisions of the Ethics and Government Act expire, the Department of Justice has had in place regulations providing for the appointment of private citizens as special counsels who possess the full power an independent authority to exercise all investigative and prosecutorial functions of any United States attorney. 
Unlike a U.S. attorney, however, private citizen Jack Smith has not been nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate for the particular office of special counsel, which he now holds. This is blatantly unconstitutional and renders Jack Smith powerless to seek a writ of cert before the judgment of the Supreme Court. Appointments under these regulations, such as the May 17th, 2017 appointment of Robert Mueller to investigate the Trump campaign, were patently unlawful for reasons set forth in great detail. The same argument renders the appointment of private citizen Jack Smith to prosecute Donald Trump right now unconstitutional. Private citizen Jack Smith, under the regulation, has all the power of a U.S. attorney and also nationwide jurisdiction, but he was never nominated by the president, never confirmed by the Senate, the particular office of special counsel, which he now holds in the way that United States attorneys are nominated and confirmed for their particular offices. And so the question that he's saying right before the Supreme Court right now is anything that he gets a conviction on could be completely vacated by the Supreme Court because of the fact that his standing as special counsel is unconstitutional. He writes, my concern about the legality of Jack Smith's appointment is both a concern that Trump's convictions might eventually be overturned by the Supreme Court on appeal because Jack Smith was unconstitutionally appointed and a concern that even someone who has conducted himself in the way that Donald Trump has done must be tried in a constitutional way. The current Supreme Court has at least six justices who really care about the separation of powers and the appointments clause. They think about the appointments clause and the separation of powers, which it protects in exactly the same way as I do. The proper way in which an attorney general should appoint a special counsel like Jack Smith is to ask one of the very best Senate confirmed United States attorneys general now in office to prosecute the cases arising out of the events of January 6, 2021, or the misuse of classified documents And to make that person special counsel, allowing the U.S. attorney elevated now to prosecute cases nationwide and not only in one of the 93 districts, each of which has its own Senate confirmed U.S. attorney. Now, if you step back for a moment and think about what uh, Jack Smith did with David Weiss. So David Weiss was the United States attorney for Delaware. And then at the time, everybody said, you need to make him a special counsel. You need to make him a special counsel. He doesn't have enough authority. He can't really go everywhere. He, he, he wanted to bring a case in California and the U.S. attorney there wouldn't let him. He wanted to bring a case in the District of Columbia. The U.S. attorney there wouldn't let him. So you have to make David Weiss special counsel. And David Weiss kept saying, or Merrick Garland kept saying at the time, actually, he kept saying, he's got all the authority he needs. David Weiss is all the authority he needs. Don't worry about it. But then he made him special counsel. And now you see charges being brought in California against Hunter Biden. So what? What this guy is arguing here, this law professor who was also uh, worked for Ed Meese when he was attorney general of the United States under Reagan. What he's also saying is that what you can do with Jack Smith is you can make him essentially now the special counsel's special assistant. It's like the assistant to the regional manager, very different from assistant regional manager. You know what I mean? There's a big difference. The word two throws everything off there. So either the assistant to the regional manager or you are the assistant regional manager is a big difference. Jack Smith could become the special counsel's special assistant. And I don't know if that means he gets some coffee or what, but the appointments clause of the Constitution is perfectly satisfied when someone exercises power as an officer whose character the Senate and the president have previously approved of. And that is germane to that particular office. So a United States attorney general who is in the just like David Weiss, that person could be elevated as special counsel and there would not be a problem from the appointments clause because he's already been confirmed by the Senate. He's been appointed by the president. Jack Smith, though, at the time that he was made special counsel, was actually working for the government of Kosovo. He wasn't even working in the Department of Justice. It is irrelevant that Jack Smith was confirmed by the Senate to be the U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee during the Trump administration. At the time of his appointment to be special counsel on November 18th, 2022, he was a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague employed by the government of Kosovo. The organic statutes covering the Justice Department allow the Attorney General great discretion in moving around the DOJ chessboard currently confirmed appointees. They do not allow the Attorney General the power to create an inferior office just because someone was at the point in the past a DOJ superior. Now, if that is something the Supreme Court does and looks at, then that means that everything that Jack Smith has done up until this point, gets vacated because he wasn't really, he didn't have the actual authority to do what he's doing. 
who knows how the court's going to rule on this, but this amicus brief has been filed. And now the question is, will the Supreme Court consider it or not? Now, this is, um, it brings us back to Colorado for a moment, because I think there's a couple different ways this whole Colorado thing plays out. First scenario. The first scenario is the United States Supreme Court comes back and says, listen, the one and only time Donald Trump ever had due process in this matter was when the Congress impeached him. And then I should say the House impeached him and the Senate acquitted him. That was the one and only time Donald Trump actually had any due process related to the events of January 6th. And since the Constitution of the United States gives Congress the impeachment power, it is the impeachment of a president and then the subsequent trial, the removal or not, that is how the Constitution wants to see presidents dealt with. And since he was acquitted, the matter is over. Because who are we as justices to say that the Congress got it wrong? The Congress has that power. And whether we like it or not, he was acquitted. So that was the one time that he ever had due process and he was acquitted. So therefore, you can't bar him from being on the ballot. Had the the Congress not tried him back then, had the Congress not impeached him back then, you could make an argument. But the whole point of him being a president in office And then those actions happening while he's president and then the Congress of the United States of America exercising the impeachment powers that it has and then coming back with a not guilty verdict. Essentially, even though it's not a court of law, it has even more power than a court of law, because that's the only remedy to deal with a president. Presidents are not supposed to be dealt with in the legal system. They're supposed to be dealt with through the Congress. And Congress did that and acquitted Trump. You see, the Supreme Court could come back and just say that and just say, look, this matter's over because they had their chance and they didn't do it. Now to try to go after a private citizen for what he did as president when the Congress tried him as president and found him to be not guilty would be worse than double jeopardy. It would be an insult to the impeachment clause of the Constitution. And therefore, the matter's over. And in which case, then Colorado can't ban him. No state can ban him because he was not found guilty of insurrection or rebellion or anything else that the house had impeached him on and if he had been removed by the senate he would be ineligible to be to run for office anyway the act of removing a president from office renders that person ineligible to ever serve again it's the kill shot and the senate could have exercised that but they chose not to they only had i think 57 votes they would have needed 60 to do that So they fell short, but it doesn't matter. All you need is one juror, right? The old saying, you know, you don't need to convince 12 people. You need to convince one person, one person of the uh, not guilty verdict. And that's all you need. And then the person walks. It is the, it is the, the, it it falls on the state or in this case, the Congress to come up with that supermajority. It's not on the president to have to fight and prove that he's innocent. It's much like in a court of law, the same sort of thing. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, his guilt, and then get a supermajority. And if you don't get that, even if it comes down to one senator, it's no different than if a jury of 12, 11 think the guy's guilty and one doesn't. The guy walks. So this is what I think the court could do. In which case, then it's over. And then you also would have a tough time, I think, charging Trump with anything related to January 6th in federal court. Because again, the argument would be the Congress has the power. The Congress did charge him as president of the United States. You can't now go back and charge him as a private citizen for the actions he did as president because the only way to deal with it at the time was when he was president. It was it was when Donald Trump was president. That's when the event occurred. Congress did so, impeached him, had a trial, and then found him to be not guilty. Or the Supreme Court could do something else. The Supreme Court could come back and say, uh, he was never he never had due process in Colorado. Therefore, Colorado can't keep him off the ballot. It's a federal crime and he was never charged with that. They could just ignore what Congress did and say that, which, of course, then means Jack Smith, the special counsel, is probably going to throw some charges Trump's way. And then the whole question of whether or not the president is disqualified under Section three of the 14th Amendment, the disqualification clause is still unsettled and still unanswered. Now, it's important to note that at the time that they drafted that clause in the 14th Amendment, they actually did have the word president in in the original draft, and then they took it out. So now if you're a textualist, if you're an originalist, if you're actually looking at the intent of 
Congress or the intent of the ratifiers, the framers, whoever, when they when they adopt something that has to play a big part in everything, in your analysis and your understanding of that. You write an original draft, you include the president as one of the offices you're going to bar, and yet you take it out, which then at that point means you decided to exclude the presidency from the disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment. That was a very deliberate act. See, up until now, we've been arguing this point and people have been saying, well, they meant it. It's implied. You have to read between the the words and read between what's said and you come away with the understanding that, yes, the president is included here by virtue of the fact that all these other offices are, and you got to play this, you know, mumbo jumbo word style game. But if you understand that they originally meant to include the office of president and then ultimately did not in what was finally adopted, well, then that makes a pretty compelling case that they purposely did not want the presidency to be included. In which case, then the disqualification clause doesn't count. And this whole thing is a moot point. And then the one and only chance they had to stop Trump from being on the ballot was if they had removed him from office as president. If they had rendered a guilty verdict, if he had been out of office, the same thing would have occurred. You know, if you, you can impeach somebody after they leave office and it, the same thing happens if they come up with a, the, the two thirds supermajority, that person, even if they're out of office, cannot hold office again. It's very uh, definitive. I mean, there's and there's no appeal process and there's no you don't get to go to the Supreme Court and have them hear an appeal. There's no there's no appeal to an impeachment, a, a, a impeachment verdict, I should say. Impeachment being the charge, but whatever the verdict that the Senate hands down, there's no there's no uh, there's no appeal for that. You don't get to take it to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. You don't get to turn around and, and go to the Supreme Court and say, please, 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 please. Hear my case and let me make a case for why Congress was wrong, please. No, that's it. You're done. So the the other option the court could do then, of course, the third option the Supreme Court could do would be to come back and say, we are just ruling on the merits of the disqualification clause. And if we once and for all make a determination on that, then what Colorado did is either moot or what Colorado did is is okay under the law. And then we'll go forward from there. Now, the Roberts court tends to be a very narrow court. They like to come up with narrow decisions. So a broad, sweeping, comprehensive, all in Trump didn't get due process and Trump is not eligible under the disqualification clause because they didn't mention the presidency might be a little much for the Roberts court. But then again, this Supreme Court likes to defer to Congress a lot and the Constitution. So I think the easy way out here for John Roberts, the easy way out here is to just say there was an impeachment of the president. The verdict was not guilty. And that's it. The matter's over. And yes, to a point that my friend made, the the principle of double jeopardy should apply here. Well, it's not actual double jeopardy, obviously, under the law, but it should be the principle of double jeopardy should apply. You already tried him and he walked. So now to try him again in federal court as a private citizen for the actions he did as president when Congress already rendered a verdict on that would be unfair to him personally, would be unfair to the Constitution because it would render the impeachment clause to be a meaningless act. It would it would it would rob it of its of its power. You know, the founders didn't say, let's let's give the power to go after the president to. The Supreme Court. They said, let's give the power to Congress, the elected Congress of the United States of America, and they get to go after the president if they believe he's abused his office. But if they go after the president and then he walks, it's over. He was tried. He was acquitted. You don't have to like it, but he was acquitted by the Senate. So I think the Roberts court, the easiest way out for them at this point is to just render that. Say, look, all we can do as a Supreme Court is say that the Congress of the United States of America, as per the impeachment clause of Article One, they tried the president. Everything was followed. The procedure was all followed. I mean, Roberts was there for it. He was the guy that presided over it. And the verdict was not guilty. So it's over. That was the chance. That was the chance to render judgment on Donald Trump as guilty and then bar him from ever being able to hold office again. And Congress acquitted him of that. So the whole thing is done. We don't even have to get into the disqualification clause under the 14th Amendment because the impeachment clause trumps that. 
It's the highest thing. You don't have to parse words. You don't have to play little word games about anything when it comes to, did they mean to include the president or not? And what is an insurrection? And what is a rebellion? And what does it mean to give aid and comfort? You don't have to worry about any of those things. You just defer to the one part of the Constitution that deals with presidents who abuse their office. And the House tried, the House uh, uh, charged him. The Senate had a trial, a full trial. John Roberts presided over it as the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And they found Trump to be not guilty. And it only takes one senator in a, in a two-thirds majority. I mean, if it had been 59, it would have been the same thing. It was 57 that said yes, but you need 60, just like you need 12 in a, in a criminal trial to render somebody's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the same thing. It's the same concept. But we just deal with it with presidents in the political court versus the legal court. And they did that. So now for the court to come back and say, but we don't count that anymore. We don't, we don't count that because we didn't like the, the decision Congress reached. Or we feel that the impeachment clause isn't as valid as, say, charges in federal court would be to render the entire impeachment clause of the United States Constitution uh, toothless. And I just don't think the court would do that. So there you go, John Roberts. There's your out right there. Take it and run with it. And have a unanimous opinion by the court and affirm the power of Congress to impeach presidents and affirm the impeachment clause. And you can leave the disqualification clause under the 14th Amendment for another day. 855-839-1210 if you want to weigh in on Twitter at Rich Zioli. If you'd like to join in either on social media or on the phone as we have an abbreviated show tonight. We're together for about another hour or so. So we'll make the most of it. Got a ton of great audio for you and a ton of great stories as well. But I'll tell you about my friends at Emmons Roofing and Siding. For years, I've been talking about the great work my friends Stephanie and Matt and the entire team at Emmons have done for me and my home. And now Emmons can bring that same quality of work to all of your kitchen and bathroom remodeling needs. Emmons Roofing has really become your one-stop shop for roofing, siding, windows, and now bathrooms and kitchens. Trust the team at Emmons that I have used in my home for over six years. Do you have a property at the shore? Well, then have the team at Emmons come out and take a look at the roof now. Small winter leaks can lead to big, costly repairs when the warm weather hits. Call 856-556-3229 today for a free estimate. Or go online at EmmonsRoofing.com or visit the Emmons Design Showroom in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. You can go to EmmonsRoofing.com or you can go to EmmonsRemodeling.com and see their great remodeling work. We had them remodel our kitchen and our bathroom in our former house, and my wife was thrilled with the work Emmons did. And I love the fact that the roof has a lifetime warranty on it. They just uh, replaced some skylights for me in the new house, and they have more projects to go. So go with the, the company that I've been using time and again for every project in my home. Roofing, siding, windows, doors, kitchen, and bathroom remodeling. You can trust Emmons. EmmonsRoofing.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Zioli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. All righty. 855-839-1210 if you want to weigh in here. Got a lot of things to chat about. Let's start with the Colorado Secretary of State, shall we? Jenna Griswold. Uh, what a terrible interview she did last night. She talked with Alex Wagner on MSNBC about how she intends to proceed with the Colorado's primary ballots in light of the new ruling from the state Supreme Court. Uh, cut number four. Time of certification. I mean, your deadline of, of when you have to decide what names to print on the, on the ballot is January 5th, right? There is a stay on this until January 4th. Can you walk me through the sort of scenarios here if the Supreme Court does not decide whether it's going to review this or not by January 5th? Or, sorry, I should use the latter. If the Supreme Court does decide it's going to review it but has not issued a decision by January 5th, that means that Trump's name goes on the primary ballot. Is that correct? 
If the United States Supreme Court decides to take this case, I'm sure that they will consider that certification in the state of Colorado is uh, very quickly approaching and will issue an order uh, or a decision quickly to make sure that we are in compliance with the law. Um, if they take the case, we, we will make clear to the court the, the deadlines and the timelines. Um, you know, the, the, the bigger thing is if the court does not take the case. Uh, as of January 5th, if the U.S. Supreme Court does not take the case or intervene, then Donald Trump will not be on the presidential primary ballot. Uh, and frankly, this case is only here because Trump's actions himself. He is the person who has led to this decision that he is disqualified because he tried to steal the presidency from the American people. I do have to ask you, given how open and shut proponents of the 14th Amendment in this case are, the dissent from just, for example, Chief Justice Boatwright, who authored, I believe, the dissent, he says that he thinks the applicable section of Colorado election code was not, in fact, enacted to decide whether a candidate engaged in insurrection. He does not agree with the disqualification as a proper line of action. I mean, do you think there's any merit to this? Does it give you any pause as a secretary of state? As secretary of state, I'll always follow the law and the United States Constitution. Uh, and that includes following the majority decision in a case. Under Colorado law, my office routinely checks if a candidate is eligible for the office that they're looking to serve in. So, for example, if Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to be on the presidential primary ballot, we would not allow him because under the United States okay, Constitution. Let's, ju let's uh, jump in here. Um, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger cannot run for president. She's correct about that point. He was not born in the United States of America. That's true. That's a that's a true fact. But. That's different from having a legal determination that a candidate is ineligible to be on the ballot. Like, let's say, for example, a candidate was actually not born in the United States of America, but told everybody he was. And then you got his birth certificate and it turned out he wasn't born in, I'll just pick a state, I don't, Hawaii, right? It was born somewhere else. And then at that point, that person sued and said that the uh, the birth certificate's real, and the other person said, no, the paperwork said it goes to court, and the court finds a determination that this person was not born in the United States of America. That would be a process. That would be a legal process. Arnold Schwarzenegger has never pretended that he that he was born in the United States of America, so it's self evident he's not he's not trying to get on the ballot. He's not he's not trying to pull a fast one here. If there ever were a situation where somebody who was thirty years old tried to run for president, and Everybody realized that he was 30 and not 35. Well, then at that point, you'd have a process to say, prove your age to us. Which, which is correct? Is your birth certificate wrong or is your genealogy wrong? And however that process would go. And then, the, but you see, that's the difference, though. There'd be a process. To then equate it to somebody who we all know was born in a foreign country and to say that that person was trying to get on the ballot. But that's, that's a stupid comparison because... He's not pretending to be somebody else. You'd, you'd have to use a case where somebody it was it wasn't black and white that that person could not be on the ballot. And there's very few things in the Constitution other than the fact you have to be born in the United States of America, 35 years old, and you have to live in the United States for a certain period of time. So, again, if somebody came back and said, you know, what, I think this person only lived in the United States for five years, not seven years. All right, well, then there's a process. You go to a court. You have a federal judge make a determination. You could appeal to the Supreme Court. I mean, there's a process there. But to then just turn around and have the state of Colorado decide that a person's violated the disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment without a process, and that process is on the state level and not on the federal level when that's where the authority would be? No, you don't get to do that. that you don't get to do that. That's, that's, that's an overreach by the state power at that point. Now, had the state of Colorado been, had Donald Trump tried to file in Colorado and the Congress had impeached him and removed him from office, then the secretary would be well within her rights to say we can't put him on the ballot because that process had happened and now he's disqualified from office. Or if a court had found him guilty of insurrection and rebellion and then the interpretation would be at that point that he's ineligible, then the, the state could then at that point make that determination. 
And then the process would be appealed at the Supreme Court level. And they would either agree that this does rise to that level since he was convicted by a, by a jury or it doesn't. But Colorado doesn't just get to make that determination when there has not been a legal process in the proper venue where that would be carried out. Colorado doesn't just get to make that decision on its own because it puts somebody on their ballot. You have to look at where that venue would be. And in order to do that, under the confines of the United States Constitution, it would have to be in federal court. Obviously, because it's a federal issue that has not happened. So to say that the D.C., to say that the circuit court in Colorado had a trial is irrelevant. It doesn't, it, they don't have the authority to have a trial in this matter. It's a federal issue. It's a federal offense. A potential insurrection or rebellion or aid and comfort to those is clearly a federal issue. The venue for that would be federal court. Whatever determination the federal court makes, then the Secretary of State can apply it. The court rules that he's ineligible because he was found guilty. Well, then, yeah, you keep him off the ballot. All your job is to do is to look at what is the legal definition and apply it but you don't get to make things up you don't get to turn around and say well i don't think they really are 35 what yeah i don't think they really are i mean they're they're you know uh, maturity wise they're only 28 so we're not going to put them on the ballot you don't get to do that yeah well we do actually you know yeah i don't think they really were born in america what i don't think they were so we're gonna keep them off the ballot but he's got a birth certificate yeah i don't think it's real so we're not gonna follow it that'd be insane there, there has to be a, a proper venue to adjudicate these things in before states just can, can go rogue like that. I mean, with all the nonsense about Barack Obama's birth certificate, had a state tried to bar him from being on their ballot, it would have quickly gone to federal court and a federal judge would have said, go scratch. Because the state would not have the authority in that matter. The, the federal courts would. It's a federal issue under Article 2 of the Constitution. I mean, this is not that complicated here. We have to look at the appropriate venues. And Colorado is trying to bypass all that and say, we get to determine this on our own. No, that's not what you get to do. Here's Professor Jonathan Turley arguing that uh, he hopes all nine justices will overturn the Trump ballot ban. He's hoping for a unanimous opinion on this and why he thinks it's so important that that happens. Cut number six. Presidency, because if not, it's a get out of jail free card. We can't have one office be able to do whatever they want when it comes to rebellion and then be able to be seated in office again. You say what, Jonathan? Well, it's a curious argument because it's not a get out of free card because there's laws governing uh, insurrection and incitement. And notably, Trump was not charged with that. You had a very motivated special counsel in Jack Smith who hit Trump with anything he could, but he conspicuously left out incitement, insurrection, sedition, because he couldn't prove it because the evidence is not there. So that only adds to the problems here. But the, the real issue for the Supreme Court is far more fundamental and frankly chilling. You know, this country is the most successful and stable constitutional system in history. Now, after two centuries of that, uh, what these four justices have done was to is to introduce a destabilizing element in that system. Uh, and it's going to go to the Supreme Court. And this may be the ultimate challenge for Chief Justice Roberts. I don't have much question they will overturn this decision, but they should do it unanimously. They should do it in one voice. That is All nine. Not, not, and, and not divide on this. It's too important not to speak as one. The problem, though, <laughs> is that you have liberal justices on there who want to do their part to keep Donald Trump off the ballot because they believe that that's what the court is there for. That's what the court's there to do, to be an activist court. So as much as Turley, I mean, it sounds great, Jonathan, professor. It sounds great. It really does. But uh, who are you dealing with here, man? You're dealing with a bunch of lefties who believe that the Supreme Court is a is a mini legislature that it's there to advocate and push and ultimately adjudicate public policy that is otherwise unpopular in the Congress. I mean, everything you're saying, we should have had a unanimous ruling in the case that overturned Roe because all the court said in the majority opinion was that the court at the time in Roe lacked the authority to render a decision on this because it's not in the Constitution. Yeah, that should have been something that nine justices all agreed on and said, states, you go figure it out. 
we don't have the ability to make this decision. And the court was wrong in the 70s when they when they when they made the decision. And so you guys, it's on you now. You go the 50 of you go figure it out each on your own. But that did not happen, did it? No. Do you think it's going to happen now? Of course not. No, you're going to get a, a, a 6-3 decision on this, and it will be, that in and of itself will be a problem. It, much like Bush v. Gore, it's going to be the same thing. And they're going to scream that Trump's illegitimate. If he does wind up winning, he's illegitimate. He shouldn't have been able to be president. Uh, they, they tried to bar him from the ballot, but the, the, the conservative Supreme Court usurped the Constitution and put him on the ballot anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what they're going to do. That's what they'll say. Uh, here is, um, let's see now, I want to play this clip for you. This is, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you know what? Let me skip that one for a moment. The other point too that, I will, that I'll make on this issue is that when you're dealing with the deep state, you have to understand that these connections go very, very deep, right? A, a, they go very deep. The, the organization behind this effort to stop Trump from being on the ballot the guy who runs this is actually on a subcommittee of the Department of Homeland Security. Yes, there's a direct line between Joe Biden's deep state and Trump getting removed from the Colorado ballot. The Daily Caller investigative reporter wrote a great piece on this, James Lynch. And I've talked to James in the past, a very smart guy. He said, the left-wing legal organization behind Colorado's decision to remove former President Donald Trump from its Republican primary ballot as a direct link to the Biden administration. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, their president and CEO, Noah Bookbinder, is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Homeland Security Advisory Council, where he gives real-time advice to DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And no, it's not about the border, obviously. It's about, you guessed it, disinformation. This organization, the guy in charge, is on the, the subcommittee for the Homeland Security Department, and he works his time to make sure that they can properly filter out disinformation so that you crazy kids don't get to believe whatever you want. It has to be filtered first through the government. So yeah, there's a direct line from the deep state to what happened here in Colorado. There's no question about that. You can see that with your own eyes. And so to the point that... that Everybody makes here about the efforts to stop Donald Trump. This is why politically, even Karl Rove came out today and said, this is going to help Donald Trump politically. Trump's whole argument has been, look at what they're, they're terrified of me. They're terrified of me. They want to do anything they possibly can to stop me. Anything. And so they'll even try to keep me off the ballot. Whatever they got to do, they're going to do it. So please, you know, trust me when I tell you I am the most dangerous man in America. It plays right into his hands. And whatever I'm going to do to them is so bad, they have to try to keep me off the ballot. I mean, even Karl Rove, who is no fan of Trump and does not want to see Trump return to the White House, trust me on this one, even he's acknowledging that this is a gift to him politically. All the other candidates are acknowledging it too. In fact, they are all feeling very much like what Frank Luntz said. They are all being left behind in the news cycle because of this. Because there's no oxygen left. There's no oxygen left. And everybody is focused on this now and is going to be focused on this until the Supreme Court makes a ruling on this. And then if it, if it, if it goes the way I think it's going to go, where Trump is eligible to run, then it's still going to be nonstop coverage of this because you're going to have all people reacting and saying this is ridiculous and the, the conservative court is once again meddling and blah, blah, blah. And they're no better than Russia. Here's Delaware Senator Chris Coons. We should all be encouraged by Colorado's decision that will take away the right of millions of people to vote for the candidate that they like. Cut five. ...of the text of the 14th Amendment. Uh, I'll remind you, this provision of the 14th Amendment uh, was written to prevent uh, those who were part of the Confederacy who took up arms against the United States in our Civil War from returning to federal elected office. Uh, but there was a finding by the court in Colorado looking at the evidence that former President Trump participated in an insurrection. I was here on January 6th. Uh, we had an impeachment trial for President Trump after the events of January 6th. I think it's undeniable, in my view, that he participated in an insurrection and as such should be disqualified from holding federal office. This will be appealed, I assume, to the Supreme Court. And whether they take it up and whether or not they rule on it will play a critical role in the shape of the Republican primary electorate. 
I'm confident Joe Biden will be reelected regardless of which Republican is on the ballot. But this could really shake up the Republican primary. It is absolutely going to shake up the Republican primary and shake it up in Trump's direction. I mean, he's the de facto nominee now by far, without question. And the Democrats want him to be the nominee. They are rolling the dice that he's the easiest one to beat. And I think if you look at these polling numbers coming out of states that are critical must-win states, and he's leading Joe Biden in all seven of them, all seven of them, I think the Democrats are playing with fire here. I really do. I think they are playing with fire. Because they keep poking the bear, you know, and you keep poking the bear and one day the bear is going to turn around and scratch you and it's not going to feel very good. But they keep doing this because they're convinced that he's the easiest one to beat. Now, look, I think that there's no question that another Republican who's not Trump would probably trounce Biden because he doesn't have any baggage. But they'll have baggage by Election Day of some sort or another because that's what will happen right now. They're all untested on the national level. They'll have baggage by Election Day for sure. So when you look at polling data that shows you that, you know, Nikki Haley beats Trump by or beats Biden by 10 and Trump only beats Biden by three. Take that with a grain of salt. Nikki Haley has not been exposed to a national audience yet. They haven't started their relentless attack ads against her. They haven't started doing what the, they will do, which is to try and destroy her, link her as being a a pro-life uh, you know, fembot who doesn't. Well, fembot's the wrong word. That's Green Jean-Pierre. But, you know, a pro-life robot who who uh, is just there to do the bidding of the conservative white male. I mean, they'll, they'll go after her, too. So those numbers will come down. I think any Republican beats Joe Biden. And I think that unlike the Democrats, I think Trump beats Joe Biden. That's where that's where they get this wrong. They think everybody beats Biden but Trump. And they are going to find out that they are sadly, sadly mistaken. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. Listen, Cherry Hill Vavo on Route 70 in Cherry Hill. My great friends over there. Lots of great things are happening at Cherry Hill Vavo. They're at the beginning of an exciting renovation to their dealership. And that means this is a great opportunity for you to purchase the Vavo of your dreams. They need to make room for all of the construction equipment. So this month, take their already generous offers and add these incredible offers. An additional $1,000 off all new Vavos plus owner loyalty. And $2,000 off when financing or leasing through Volvo Cars, plus a $7,500 lease rebate on all plug-in Volvos. The dedicated professionals at Cherry Hill Volvo pride themselves on always delivering the luxury experience that you deserve. And they'll certainly continue to do that throughout the remodeling of their dealership. It's why I chose and continue to choose Cherry Hill Volvo. I love my Volvo and you will too. Cherry Hill Volvo is the most accessible Volvo dealer to Philly and South Jersey right across the bridge. Judith, Yosef, and the entire team look forward to meeting you. Cherry Hill Volvo is where relationships really do matter. So make some time over this holiday break to get in there and say hello. And find out for yourself why Volvos are such great cars to drive. Safe and luxurious with all the latest technology. Whether you drive the XC90, like we'll be using to go up to see Bridget's family in the Adirondacks over Christmas break. Or you want to do something like a certified pre-owned. Either way, they'll take great care of you. So make a point in this uh, Christmas vacation to go see Cherry Hill Volvo. And you can do a test drive. There's never going to be any pressure. The car's not right for you. The car's not right for you. I know sometimes there's a sense of saying, I don't want to go because, you know, they're going to pressure me. They don't do that there. So really, if you just want to check it out for yourself and see what it's like, go. By all means, please go. You will never have any pressure. I had friends who one time went and eventually bought an XC90, but they bought it on their sixth visit to the dealership. Their sixth visit to Cherry Hill Volvo. So what does that tell you? Cherry Hill Volvo is where relationships matter. Thanks for listening to the Seoli Show podcast from Talk Radio 1210 WPHD and the Odyssey app. WPHD, WPHD, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will This is the next generation of talk. Now on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, Rich Zioli. All right, so where does everything go here? Will the Jeffrey Epstein list actually be public by the time we come back on the air in January? Hmm, That's the question. And please do your part for climate change and stop breathing. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. 855-839-1210 on Twitter. At Rich Zioli. Lots to chat about, even though it's an abbreviated show tonight. And uh, we have more basketball coming. But what are you going to do, right? 
I read today that New York State, of all the states, have the biggest population uh, leave of the state. More, like 100,000 more people left. It was a total of about 260,000, and I think 166,000 people died. So more people left the state voluntarily than died, which is a really bad metric for a blue state. But this is the problem when you look at how blue states are run, obviously. Uh, I just got, this was in my show prep, but my friend also sent this to me, and uh, it infuriates me because my daughter Reagan loves the show Coco Melon. And Coco Melon is probably her favorite show. But there's a spinoff of Coco Melon that I was not aware of called Coco Melon Lane. This will not be shown in the Zioli house. This was released on Netflix on November 17th. The show, which is geared toward toddlers, exploded on Netflix, quickly becoming the number one kids show on the streaming platform. So Coco Melon is basically, it's a, it's a baby and he's got his family and they, they, they try to teach all these good, helpful lessons about using manners and uh, being polite and all these you're using the potty, all these things, right? It's it's good. It's actually a very good show. I've watched a lot of episodes with Reagan. Like she was sick the last couple of days, and we just kind of you know cuddled on the couch and watched Coco Melon. When you got a sick kid, they don't really want to do much. We don't normally we try to limit the screen time as best we can, but like any other parent, it's you know it's challenging. So you want to make good choices for them. But in this particular episode. The new Coco Melon Lane on Netflix has a boy in a dress dance for his two gay dads. Of course, one dad's black and one dad's white because, as Joe Biden said, everything has to be biracial now. Coco Melon is the most popular show for babies and toddlers ages two plus. And by the way, the interracial thing doesn't bother me. What bothers me is the fact that the kid's in a dress. I don't care about the gay dads. It's the, it's the dress part that bothers me. It's the fact that the, the, little, the little kid is in a dress. And I'm just saying that they're just checking all the, the PCDEI metrics you know they're checking all the boxes right there it's like biracial couple yes gay couple yes of course and then have a little baby in a in a in a tutu dress up like a girl and dance you know what i mean like stop i mean this is this is this is what i mean and it's the indoctrination of this maybe i'll be a bat or maybe a superhero nico says as he looks at the costumes can you pick one for me i want to look great we think the way you'll look great is to just be yourself one of the dads responds who am I? I can't decide, Nico sings as he dresses up in a firefighter outfit and then a chef's outfit. Something that we know about you, you love to get up and dance, the dads sing in unison. How about you break out those moves for your two biggest fans? Nico is then shown doing ballet moves in a tiara and a tutu. Nico holds a tiara and a propeller beanie trying to decide on one. He ends up wearing all the hats for the photo, including the tiara. I picked up a lot of hats because I like to make people laugh, Nico says. The dads first appeared in an earlier episode where Nico says one for Papa and one for Daddy as he sets the dinner table with plates. And, you know, this is unnecessary for a, uh, a show for little kids. It's just completely unnecessary. It, it's, there's nothing about this other than indoctrination. That's all it is to try to make kids think this is completely normal. And it's not normal for little kids to start, you know, little boys to dress up as girls. But it will be one thing if, if it was playful yeah i mean you know little girls dress up as as truck drivers and they dress up as all these things and you can probably get away with that you know girls kind of go through this tomboy phase and you could probably have a little girl maybe dress up as you know look i'm a i'm a you know in overalls or something like that but you still wouldn't be making the point about cross-dressing you know what I'm, you know what i'm saying you you could have a little girl do something that is more of a um i don't know kind of like a I mean, there are women who work in construction. There are women who, who work as lumberjacks. There are women who work as, uh, you know, roofers. I mean, right? I don't think anybody would have an issue with that. But they purposely put the little boy in a dress because boys don't wear dresses. Boys don't hold tiaras. Boys don't, boys don't do those things. You see what I'm saying? So they wanted to, what they were doing is very deliberate here. It wasn't as if a matter of saying, oh, kids just like dress up. And sometimes they do that. My son has never once ever in his nine years put on a dress. My son has never put on a tiara. My son has never held a princess wand. Never. Even when he was just three years old, a little boy. Like this little baby is, I think, a two-year-old in this episode. Never once. Never, never went towards dolls or anything like that. And conversely, my daughter Claire has never not worn a dress or a skirt one day in her entire life. She, she wouldn't be caught dead playing with Patrick's superheroes, for example. She has no interest in that. She wants to dress up like a princess every single day. And she does every single day. 
She has no interest in dressing up like Captain America or no interest in dressing up like Jalen Hurts, like my son does. She has no interest in these things. And Reagan, as a two-year-old, plays with everything and smashes things. And she's just kind of, you know, she's just she's, she's three now, but she's a little, you know, a little terror. My point, though, is that we, we know what they're trying to do here. We know what they're trying to normalize. They're not having fun with kids playing dress up. They're purposely trying to say this is normal and make kids believe it's normal. And that's where parents like me say, guess what's not being shown in my house? And I'm glad that this came out today because it really is um, one of the problems in our society right now is that parents can't even just let their kids watch a children's show and go in the other room without having to worry about something political being inserted in there, something that is trying to indoctrinate the kids. This is not the first time Netflix has done this. They had another thing with like a, I don't know, like a transgender moose or something, bull, I forget. Earlier this week, the New York Times ran an article criticizing Chip Chilla, one of the shows, saying it includes weirdly present parents. The show's cartoon, Chinchilla Father, is a highly involved father, an unrelenting jokester who rarely seems to have to work, the Times said. On Tuesday, the Daily Wire slammed the Times article, which has also criticized the father character in the Australian children's series, Bluey. There are two kinds of dads that stand up to the New York Times is problematic. Bankley's Chip Chilla and Bluey. What's so problematic? Weirdly present fathers. Both fathers derided as a fantasy for not being around for their kids, for being so active, for, for being around for their kids, for being so active and engaged with their children. But according to the New York Times, Chip Chilla is the far more offensive of the two because Chum Chum teaches lessons about dead white people like George Washington, Ben Franklin, Neil Armstrong, etc., and leads his kids in fun games and lessons as a way of establishing male authority according to the New York Times. Chip Chilla is the most popular show on the platform, and Bluey is the most popular children's show, period. It's no coincidence that the two shows that feature loving and engaged nuclear families with great values who actually enjoy being together are so popular. And it's no coincidence that the cultural gatekeepers at the New York Times have now decided to go after these shows as a result. The left not only wants to add its radical agenda to kids' entertainment, they want to remove good values from kids' entertainment. Our culture has fallen so far, and at times it might seem hopeless. As the New York Times wrote this piece, The Fantasy of the Fun TV Dad. In the children's series Bluey and its conservative knockoff Chip Chilla, boundlessly attentive fathers step into assage parental anxieties. And as Dr. Jordan Peterson said, it's been decades since positive male role models, read fathers, have been featured in their sterile landscape of popular culture. They all started to disappear in the 60s when the actual family began to disintegrate. The last real exception I saw was the coach star of Ted Lasso, who was an admirable and necessary father figure to his team, although divorced. There is perhaps no more well-documented fact in the development psychology research literature than the pernicious effect of absent fathers. Despite this, anything documenting the utility of the nuclear family or portraying in a positive light a dad who's around is, anath- is, is antithetical to the idiot pathological left hell-bent on remaking humanity in the image of their omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent totalitarian state idols, and dangerously noisy in their assertion that the positing of an ideal whatsoever is immorally oppressive and exclusionary. There simply is no legacy corporate media outlet anywhere that poses a more consistent threat to everything traditionally good than the New York Times. Even the appalling Guardian is less pernicious in its effects. Conservatives, classical liberals know your enemy. And you moderate Democrats starting to rise out of your stupor in the wake of the pro-Hamas protests and the dreadful congressional antics of the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT, you might well take note, too. Everything that bloody progressive rag stands for is aimed squarely at fostering the revolution which all of you in the center of your party claim to eschew. Very good. Well said. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of Parents would just love to be able to let their kids veg and not have to worry about things. But the New York Times looks at a family that's all together as problematic for kids. I don't see why, because honestly, I mean, if there are shows that have uh, divorced parents or something, but the parents are active and engaged in their kids' lives, I think that's fine. It's okay. I mean, I know divorced people. They're not pariahs, and many of them are incredibly engaged with their children. Some are deadbeats. But the ones that I know, for the most part, are very engaged with their children's lives. And there's nothing wrong with showing that so that kids don't feel bad about their situation at home. But to then criticize a show that shows a family that's together as being somehow problematic for children 
is just stupid. That's just the New York Times being stupid and just hating the fact that there might be a family that worked out. Uh, let me share this with you. There's new plagiarism charges surfacing against Harvard's president, prompting CNN's Jake Tapper to question the school's double standards. Cut number eight. Now, Harvard's guide on sourcing says this on plagiarism, quote, in academic writing, it is considered plagiarism to draw any idea or any language from someone else without adequately crediting that source in your paper, unquote. Now, critics of Dr. Gay and Harvard's review of the allegations say that there is a double standard going on here. CNN's uh, Matt Egan is following this. Matt, what exactly is Dr. Gay accused of here? Well, Jake, Claudine Gay's career is under a microscope, and now she's faking, facing accusations of plagiarism. Now, Gay recently submitted corrections to two papers that she wrote as a professional academic in 2001 and 2017. However, there are clear examples of plagiarism that occurred in the 1990s when Gay was studying for her Ph.D. at Harvard. Now, in one example, Gay's 1997 dissertation lifted one paragraph almost verbatim from another from another source without citation. That offense appears to go against Harvard's current guide on plagiarism, which you stated earlier, Jake. Harvard's plagiarism policy says that students who submit work without clear attribution to sources will be, quote, subject to disciplinary action, up to and including requirement to withdraw from the college. Except if you're the president of Harvard, in which case then they redefine the standards for you because uh, they want to keep you because of your DEI uh, your DEI efforts. Look at that, Henry. The one time my wife has turned on the show in I can't tell you how many years, we were just listening to your show and had to shut it off. I said, why? She said, the cocomelon topic. I didn't know what you were going to say. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, boy. One time my wife tunes into the show, she has to quickly, promptly run over and shut it off because the kids are home. Oh, boy. So oh, let me boy. tell you at this point, now that I know the radio's off, the elf on the shelf is a drunk. <laughs> Once again, the other night, he wound up coming back to the same shelf. And this time, he brought back a little friend from the North Pole, if you know what I mean. Brought back a little candy cane. You know what I'm saying? Candy cane's dancer. What's his drink of choice, you think? Oh, he's a hot toddy guy. Oh, really? Yeah, big time. Oh, I love those. Love the hot toddies, the elf. That's oh, cold in the North Pole, you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Or maybe he likes those peppermint martinis or something. I think they're disgusting, but they're very popular right now. Yeah, I haven't had one. Yeah, don't have one. Chocolate martinis, too. We had one at the Hersey Lodge years ago. Ugh, gross. I like an espresso martini. Yeah, they're very popular right mm-hmm. now. They'll keep you up. They'll get you going. It's, a, it's an upper and a downer all in one. You know oh, what yeah, I mean? absolutely. Upper and a downer in one powerful cocktail. Look at that. Uh, John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesperson, was asked a question today. What Can you point to one thing, one thing the White House is doing right now that is making an impact on the border? Just one thing, anything? Cut number two. Uh oh, cut two. Hang on, hang on. You're pulling a DeSantis. I, I know it's not loading. And just going dark on me. It's it's just not loading. It's just not loading. Yeah, hold on. All right, how about we do Corinne Jean Pierre? Cut three. Not able to articulate a single policy the Biden administration would support to secure the southern border. Cut number three. I understand you don't want to negotiate from the podium, but can you tell the American people if there's any immigration policy that this White House is willing to talk about and and is working on with Republicans? So I want to be really careful as negotiations happen. We don't want to do this in the public, right? It does not help the process. Uh, And so we want to make sure that those negotiations are happening. Obviously, we're part of those negotiations with, uh, with with the senators. We think it's going in the right direction. We want to make sure that we get to a bipartisan agreement. It's incredibly important. The president understands. He understands that we have to fix this immigration system. It has been broken for decades now. And so we have to do everything that we can to fix that system. And so we're going to have those conversations. And you're right. It's not just about funding. It's also about policy discussions that they're having. And so don't want to get ahead of it. And let's not forget, this is a president that has had uh, these types of negotiation or been part of these types of his team, certainly has been part of these types of negotiation, uh, negotiations for some indifferent, obviously indifferent, uh, indifferent subjects and legislation. So that has happened for, for uh, the last two to almost three years, and they've been successful. So we're going to continue to do that and stay steadfast on that. Nothing. We're doing nothing. What can we tell you? There's uh, we're not going to do anything on the border. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to say. What do you want me to say? We don't give a damn. We're not doing anything. We don't care. Um, I don't know. I got nothing. You know, a federal judge, though, today came out and said Texas can keep up the razor wire they put 
to keep people from coming into their state illegally, sneaking in. You know, and the federal government, of course, is fighting them on this. Why? Because the federal government doesn't want the border to be fixed. That's why. The Biden administration, excuse me, the Obama Biden administration is fighting Texas, saying that you have to take down, tear down this razor wire. You can't keep it up. And Texas is saying, well, number one, that's our property. And you guys tried to confiscate our property and you can't do that. And number two, we have every right to keep it up. And I equated it to this. When, every day when I drive from Jersey into Philadelphia, I have to pay a toll of $5 and this stupid freaking bar that comes down, you know, and I can't cross that unless I pay the toll. So I was thinking, what if the federal government comes in and takes down all those bars at the bridges, you know what I mean? To separate people from, so that you can just cross freely. It's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Texas has razor wire up saying you can't come into our state this way. You have to come in over there, the legal way, right over there and not just walk in through here. And the DRPA has barriers that come up and down and say you can't pass unless you give us five bucks. You know what I mean? If you try to circumvent that, you get in trouble. But the federal government says to Texas, you can't have a barrier of any kind. And people can come in wherever they want. Now, the only other way to cross New Jersey into Pennsylvania is to swim. And I don't advise that to anybody. I don't think it's a good idea. They sometimes have the water taxi from Camden, but you still have to pay for that. My point is that lots of states have barriers to entry to other people from other states. They're called bridges and tunnels. Texas has razor wire because people are just walking in. And yet the federal government thinks it can just confiscate that. And when the federal government does that and does it the entire time, what they're really saying to people is we want an open border because otherwise they could just ignore the razor wire and pretend it's not even there. They don't have to worry about it. It's just there. But they are actively working to take it down. One day the state of Texas looks down and says, oh, man, all these Border Patrol agents are actually trying to take down our razor wire. Well, now the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has put a stay on that, saying that for the moment, at least Texas can keep the razor wire up. But just the fact that they're doing that shows you the jig is up. I mean, the fact that, like I said, John Fetterperson has to come up and John Fetterperson has to say to everybody, I want to do something about the border. And then progressives turn around and go, you're a kook. You're a kook. How dare you want to secure the border? And John Fetterman, the senator who was once the progressive of Pennsylvania, has to say, look, I'm still a Democrat, but I just think we should secure the border. And how do Democrats respond? Kill him. Kill him. Yeah, no, they are so angry at Fetterman for betraying them on open borders. Just like when he stands with Israel. There was a clip of him walking around holding a little Israeli flag in front of all these pro-Hamas protesters on Capitol Hill. And they hate him for that, too. How dare you stand with Israel? Kill him. Kill him. Guilty. Guilty. And so John Fetterperson now has to fight to keep his place in the Democrat Party. But if you've got to make it a point to prove to everybody where you stand and you're an outlier in doing so, that should tell you everything you need to know about what your party now consists of. This is your party. You're not, you're the outlier now, John Fetterman, because you want a secure border and you stand with Israel. You're, you're the outlier. Think about that. You're, you're Joe Manchin. You're Kirsten Cinema. I never thought we'd have this day would come, but you are the outlier. The majority believes that the border should be open. And so if Texas decides to put razor wire up, they, They want it taken down because that will impede someone's ability to cross into the United States illegally. I mean, just think about that. That will impede their ability to cross into the United States of America illegally. And the federal government cannot let that happen. All right, listen, um, have a very Merry Christmas. I will be on for Dana Lash tomorrow from 12 to 3, which will be replayed here on Talk Radio 1210 at 9 p.m. But uh, then I'll be back after the new year. So we have some great fill-in hosts for you. Michael Pelka is going to be here on Friday. And then it'll be Michael Pelka and Matt Rooney. And I think DeSantis and Henry will be around during all that. So you'll be in good hands, but have a very blessed Christmas and a happy new year. Sure, we'll be talking on social media throughout things. And uh, thank you for listening the entire year. Thank you for helping us have one of the absolute best years in afternoon drive history since the last time I was in afternoon drive. And I also want to tell you, thank you for always supporting our sponsors. Uh, Bridget took the kids today. Reagan actually had her appointment with Dr. Venaria today. Hopefully they didn't have Coco Melon Lane playing in the office. We'll have to make sure he doesn't play it there. But it's not too late to get yourself a great gift this year, the gift of a gorgeous smile, by booking an appointment today with my friend, Dr. Michael Venaria at Venaria Dental. I've been telling you about him for years. As you know, my entire family goes to Dr. Venaria. There's a level of care and commitment to dental excellence that Dr. Mike and his staff delivers to every patient is unmatched. 
He's been delivering results that surpass expectations that has made him a top dentist in New Jersey for 10 consecutive years. That's right. And he is a master of dental implants. So if you've been on the fence about getting that dental procedure done, reach out to Dr. Mike today. You have a choice, a clear choice for you and your family. Give Dr. Venaria a call. I promise you it will be the best gift you can give yourself. The gift of a beautiful, beautiful smile. He has two offices to serve you, Cinnaminson and Woodbury, right over the bridge. But yeah, you may have to pay a toll, but that's okay. It's worth it. Trust me. 856-786-2020. Unless the federal government comes and takes away all the barriers. 856-786-2020 or visit VenariaDental.com. V-A-N-A-R-I-A, VenariaDental.com. Remember, he's the master of dental implants, the master of complicated dental work, and you deserve a beautiful smile. VenariaDental.com. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and on the free Odyssey app. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.